0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Arrow, for reading God's word for us. We're continuing with our series on the Psalms, but today I'd like to do something slightly different because the background to Psalm 51 is, in all likelihood, David's sin against Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So I'll be preaching on 2 Samuel chapter 11, and Pastor Senkun will be preaching Psalm 51 at ARPC at Adam. And so when you listen to the two things together, you get the composite picture. So that's what we try to do, to be as faithful here in the handling and living of God's Word. And so, let's begin with, what's our view of things? What's your view of sin? So there I was on a holiday in Australia, and I went to the Australian zoo. And I had to go to the washroom and use one of the cubicles. As I walked in, uh, a young Australian boy popped into the cubicle next to me. And so he was speaking loudly to his father, who was waiting outside. And then he said, Dad, he let go of a shout, there's something in here near the seat. And the father who was outside asked him, so what is it, son? The father's trying to sound calm. And can you describe it? And the boy started to describe it. The father asked him questions. Son, can you tell me, does it have legs? No, it doesn't have legs. Does it have wings? Is it an insect? No, it's not an insect, that. Can you describe it, son? Um, <laughs> and so this went on for quite a while. And I was sitting beside Uh, sitting at the cubicle beside and getting more and more anxious as this Q&A went on. And so it's totally frustrating when we don't have the right view of what could be potentially dangerous or threatening to us that might bring hurt and harm to our lives. Which leads us to ask our first question, what's your view and my view of sin? And there are two popular views as we see here. For those who do not believe in God, we have atheistic denial. There is no such thing called sin. We religious people made it up and to make people feel guilty. And then we swing to the other end of the spectrum. There are those who believe in religions and values. Of course, there's sin. But as we go and do good works and undertake pilgrimages and spiritual disciplines, we can slowly but surely overcome sin. Those are the two popular views atheistic denial, religious hope. But what is God's view of sin? 2 Samuel chapter 11 is perhaps arguably the greatest insight into the analysis of sin. And so here you have an outline of it. The sin is covered in verse 1 to 5. And then there's the cover-up in verses 6 to 25. And then there is that getaway by David in verse 26 to 27. And then as we jump into the next chapter, we find it is God who is the party pooper of all our sin. So let's go for the first thing, the sin itself. As we read this passage, capture the context. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained in Jerusalem, the capital of God's people. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And so the background is very important. It is springtime, and springtime in the ancient world was a good time for war as opposed to winter time when it's too cold and so Israel's king should have been out there prosecuting God's war for h- holy war to capture the land and then use that land for the worship of God so what picture do we get here here's a king who is not discharging his duties as king his home he's sleeping his idol which leads us to a first thing to note, the danger of idleness. They say that idleness, the idle mind, is the devil's workshop, and there's a lot of truth in there. And so we have here in total, a composite picture, an irresponsible king, an idle king, and here we have the recipe for David's sin. And what's the recipe for David's sin? He's in the wrong place instead of out in the battlefield. He's in the palace. He's at the wrong place doing the wrong thing with the wrong thoughts. And so we find him walking on the flat palace roof. He sees this beautiful woman taking a bath, which tells you that God's Word, the Bible, is totally realistic. And here's what we call a sound theology of the sexes, that we men are turned on by sight. Why? Because can you imagine the opposite happen, happening? That if, let's say, Bathsheba was the queen and she was walking on the palace rooftop and then she saw this person called David taking a bath, what do you think would have happened? Uh, nothing, I think. Nothing. And so the Bible is really realistic. Right? He is Israel's king. He should be fighting a war. But he's fighting a moral war in his heart. And it has to do with him being turned on illegitimately because he's lasting after a woman who does not belong to him. And that's very, very important for us to realize. And so he could have looked and not lasted. But he went on. He went on and then he asked his assistant to find out who she was. The assistant came back and said, her name is Bathsheba. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. She's Eliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. And so she's identified by what? She's identified, like all of us, by our relationships. And notice, in God's sight, she's not a mere body to be used. She's a person to be loved. And I make a side point of, that's the evil and the curse of pornography today. And what's the evil and curse of pornography today? where it reduces and it cheapens, right? It reduces and cheapens men and women and children into mere bodies. In that sense, we dehumanize a God-given person. So here's Bathsheba. She has a name. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. But to David, she's just a body for his pleasure. Did you notice that? She's someone's daughter and someone's wife, but to David, she's just someone for his pleasure. And so he, as king, summons her. She has to come. He sleeps with her. He sends her back. What do you call this? (coughs) It's cold. It's clinical. It's cheap. Why? He's turned on impulsively. She turns up immediately. She has no choice. He's the king. He gets his release selfishly. He orders her release conveniently. Did you notice that the story makes no attempt to explore at this moment what I call the psychology of the sinner? What was David thinking? What was he feeling as he caught a glimpse of Bathsheba? Did David then lie on the bed Struggle with moral questions? Did he hesitate? Did he think twice? Did he have palpitations? Did he have sweaty palms? That's not the concern here. The concern he has seen in the verbs, he saw, he sent, and he took, which tells you that the true heart or character of a person is ultimately proven in his or her actions. It's an important insight, whether we're dealing with ourselves or dealing with others in ministry or in counselling. When people try to explain sin, when people tell their side of the story, we tend to let down our God and make the sin understandable and make the sin almost excusable. But did you notice here that none of that is happening? The writer doesn't go for our struggles when we are tempted. Our hesitancy, our sweaty palms does not lessen the actual act of sin that David embarked on. And so, what else do we notice? Some other ways David could have acted here. We said that earlier. I said that earlier. Then he could have looked and immediately turned away and not lasted. Or in, in that case, it will be a passing, distracting glance, and that's quite different to an intentional, lingering, right? D O M, dirty old man stare or voyeurism, which tells us that our biggest sex organ is actually our mind and not any other part of our body. Whatever we allow our mind and our eyes to linger on, that will indeed become our destruction. And for all of us, precious lessons. The way God designed us, one wife, one husband is enough to meet our needs. But in our sinful nature, in our sinful desires, one wife, one husband is never enough to meet our greed. And so we see here not the need of David, but the greed of David. Why is this important for us to realise? You see, we read this as modern-day people, and see, it's a bit unreal, right? Couldn't Bathsheba protest? What's her role in all this? So, once had a relative who... a relative who once worked in the airlines, and uh, really beautiful stewardess as part of the team. So the king, the royalty of a neighbouring nation, got on that plane. He took one look at this beautiful stewardess, who was in the same team as my, as my relative, and he demanded for her to be brought to his palace. That's the way it always works with kings. Whatever they want, they get. But we forget that we are talking about David, and David is not any king. He's a king unlike the kings of all the other nations. He is God's king over God's kingdom, over God's people, over God's city. And the early part of David's life, recorded in the early chapters, <clears throat> repeatedly tell us that David was a man after God's own heart. David feared God, and because he was a man after God's own heart, he had a good fear of God, he never took things into his hands. But by now, as we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he is now a man, a king, after his own heart, where there is no awe, no fear of God, and we see him now taking things into his very own hands, which gives us a very good definition of a king. A good definition of God's king is that we are master of self. We have all the authority and power to take whatever we want, take whoever we want, but we have to master ourselves to be a servant of God's people. Now we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that it's totally different for David. So here is David, a walking example of what? A willful sin, stubborn wrong, obstinate evil. And then from verse 6 onwards, we are now going to see the cover-up. And so, in summary again, he's turned on, she turns up, David gets his release, he orders her release, it's over and done. Affair over. One night stand over. There's only one problem. The problem is an SMS message or WhatsApp message or virtual message. And the message just says, I am pregnant. In verse 4, she purified herself from uncleanness. It's the Bible's way of telling us. Bathsheba had just had her monthly period. And when you read Leviticus chapter 15, an Israelite woman completes her period through a seven-day purification cycle. She's clearly purified and not pregnant before she comes to the palace, before she sleeps with David. Now she's clearly pregnant after she left. So what does David do? Here is the cunning cover-up. Here is the sophisticated cover-up. But before we arrive there, just a word of warning from David that who we are in one season is no guarantee of who we will be in another season. Please take note. If he began as a man after God's heart, he now is a situation as a man after his own heart. I just want to ask myself and ask you, is that you this morning? Is that you? Is that me? Very important, when he should have been out there prosecuting God's war for God's glory, he's in here fighting a moral war, no longer any love and fear of David for God. And so, the cover-up. So David sent his, this word to Joab, his commander, "'Send me Uriah the Hittite.' Then, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going on. Then David said to Uriah, "'Go down to your house and wash your feet.' So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace." with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. What is it we have here? Here is David's cover-up. He's now going to make his sexual greed look like Uriah's sexual need as a husband, especially as a husband who came back sex staff, love staff from the battlefield. Notice the sequence of events. Bathsheba is pregnant, and the conclusion is, this child is definitely from the adultery. And now David has to embark on a sophisticated cover-up. So the king graciously orders him back from the front line, gives him some needed R&R, rest and recreation. In fact, sets him, sends him a royal gift to encourage him to do what? To go home, wash his feet, which is actually a euphemism for having sex. It's a very clever plan. The only trouble is the implementation. Why? Because Uriah chose to sleep, not at home with his wife Bathsheba, but at the palace entrance. So notice all the ironies here. There was Israel's God, symbolised by the ark and the Israelite army out there in the battlefield, prosecuting a holy war for God's holy purpose and holy glory. Here was Israel's king, David, in his palace, plotting a cunning cover-up for his immoral battles. More importantly, the only person who is doing right in this whole circumstance is not an Israelite, And far from it, the Israelite king is actually a non-Israelite, a Hittite. And so there could be some truth to the saying today that sometimes non-believers behave more morally or righteously than believers. Uriah focuses on his responsibilities. He forsakes his rights. He does not take what rightfully belongs to him, his wife. David He forsakes his responsibilities. He illicitly steals from what is rightfully not his, his friend's wife. And so, Uriah's straight loyalty to God, to David, messes up David's cunning cover-up. And so, the game switches. If the blame game cannot work, that he fathered this child, that Uriah fathered his child, now David's going to try the end game. He died at war. And so the next portion from verse 14 to 25, we see how dark David's heart becomes. And we call this, he's moved from a good fear of God to bad courage for his sin. Is that you? Good fear of God? that prevented you from sinning against God and sinning against others, to bad courage, bad courage to live a life against God. In that sense, in this portion, in verses 14 to 25, we find that David and Joab are partners in crime. They get immoral courage from being in fellowship with each other to do immoral things. And now he sends one of his closest circle of commanders out to the fiercest battle to make sure that he is killed in the battlefield. So very precious lessons about sin here as we unpack it. That we see here that sin is not an isolated problem. And there's a the truth. If you tell a lie, you have to cover it up with ten other or a thousand or a million other lies. Did you notice how many of God's commandments did David break? And you just have to count. He broke five commandments. Thou shalt not murder, He did. Thou shalt not commit adultery, He did. Thou shalt not bear false testimony against your neighbor, He did that. Thou shalt not steal, He stole. And thou shalt not covet, that's where it all started. Which tells us that, which tells us that Sin is never a stand alone. There are repercussions. You break the law at one point, you break it at every point. Did you notice that the cover-up is very compulsive? Compulsive? It takes great premeditation, many moments, many days, many weeks, many months to do what? For him to call back Uriah, to organise the party, to get him drunk, to wait months, send him back to the battlefield. At every point, there was opportunity for David to... At every point, there was opportunity for David to repent, to stop sin after sin, breaking commandment after commandment. But that's us, friends. When we break the law at one point, we break it at every point. Sin is like the stone or the pebble that shatters our windscreen glass. It hits it, and it starts to fall apart. And sin is never a private matter. Never a private matter. And there are always social repercussions to sin. It scars children, it betrays friends, it stumbles others, above all, It is disobedient and dishonouring to God. So for David's sin alone, notice the social, spiritual repercussions of his sin. He made a married woman unfaithful. He fathered an illegitimate child. He plotted an innocent friend's death. He sought a violent man's conspiracy and then he caused the death of many of his soldiers to cover up and accomplish the one death he really wanted the death of uriah the hittite i say to myself as i say to you sins of our heart flowing into sins of our hand is never simply a personal private matter in the modern day world that we live in that's what we convince ourselves What right do you have to tell a man and woman not to sleep around, a man and man not to sleep around, a woman and woman not to sleep with each other? It's a private matter. There are no repercussions. According to God, whenever we do sin of any kind, beginning with sexual sin, which runs contrary to His design, there is always the wreckage of sin in our lives. It's never a private matter. Notice how the sin ends. The sin ends... And it's a chilling getaway. A chilling getaway. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is pregnant. And then King David offers to be the knight in shining armour to make her his wife. Because, Because a widow in the ancient world is at risk. At risk of being destitute and left behind. And so what do we learn of this, of David? Sex... He had the sex, he lied, the videotape or recording of his sin got totally wiped out, and it's a constant theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between where we do sin and we still try to look good. Anyone who has lived with a cheating, two-timing boyfriend or girlfriend, anyone who has lived with a cheating, two-timing husband or wife, will say that all this time, I never knew I was sleeping with the enemy. Again I ask, is that you, me, anyone listening to this? You have had your sex, you have lied about this, and the recording and videotape is totally gone. This is a chilling getaway. You are as good, and I'm as good when we do this as David, for his sin, his cunning cover-up, and his brilliant getaway. There is only one thing, the last part of verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And what do we call God here? God is always the small spot. God is always the party pooper. We are having such a great time with sin... Nobody needs to remind me of the act, of the word, of the sin. It's all wiped off. And then, did you notice for 26 verses, all that time, God was absent in 26 verses of David's sin and cover-up. But by the last verse, God turns up. This is a common pattern. you find it in Genesis, in the first sin. you find it with Cain and Abel. Cain killing Abel. He gets away with the murder and God turns up and asks him and Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? You find it at the Tower of Babel that God, after the whole of humanity, built a tower to make a name for themselves. God comes down and asks, what on earth have you done? God the party pooper. But we praise God that He stops us from eternal sinning and the pride and the glory of eternal sinning. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king, which tells you that prophecy controls monarchy. David burned with anger against the men and said to Nathan, "'As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over,' because he did such a thing and had no pity. Because Nathan had just told him a story of a man who was so rich, but then he stole from a poor man, right? Stole from a poor man to host. And David said, this man is guilty. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, if, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Nathan continues, Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Notice, this is what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And after all these pronouncements, David said to Nathan, Finally, he says, he confesses, I have sinned against Bathsheba. I have sinned against you, I have sinned against you, Nathan. No, he says, I have sinned first and foremost against the Lord, Yahweh. Which I think becomes the backdrop to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, "'Blot out my transgressions, "'wash away all my iniquity, "'and cleanse me from my sin. "'For I know my transgressions, "'and my sin is always before me, "'always before me, "'against you and you only have I sinned "'and done evil in your sight. "'For you are right in your verdict "'and justified when you judge.'" when we sin against each other personally, humanly, horizontally, that the sin that we commit is firstly an expression of our sin against God. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus comes and pronounces that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In the end, Israel search. For the perfect king finds its completion and perfection in King Jesus, who was a master of self so that he'll be a servant of God and a servant of God's people. And that's who Jesus is. And for all who believe in Jesus as Saviour, Lord and King, this is how we can and must live if we believe in Him and have the presence and the power of Holy Spirit living in us. We too, even more so, are to stop our moral battles of the heart when we should be out there pursuing God's battles of gospeling people, sharing Christ, being burdened for people's salvation and our own holiness from moment to moment, day by day. But here we are, instead of fighting God's battles to save people and our own holiness, we are thinking of how much we can sin with our eyes, with our hearts, with our hands. The second takeaway from a passage like this from King David's life is that sin is never a private matter. May God, by His grace in His Word, teach us, remind us, liberate us, from the lie that is out there, the lie of the devil, the lie of our own hearts. They tell us that illicit sex is a private matter between two adults, two consenting adults, and there are no repercussions. As we see in this sin and every sin, whenever we sin sexually, children are scarred, spouses are betrayed, relationships are never the same again, friendships are gone And when we do one sin, it just goes on and spirals out of control. And so friends, take this to heart. Listen to God's Word. The third takeaway is to be thankful. Thankful that God does crash into our life. Thankful that He does stop us in our tracks when we are sinning away on our phones in our lives. And so when I was there, in Harvard for my sabbat- sabbatical 20 years ago, they found to their horror the head of a faculty that he had stacks and stacks, this was 20 years ago, of uh, porn videos on his, on his computer, which was the university computer, and it crashed. And the IT people had to come, and he was forced to resign. And stories closer to heart, when a relative who was... Pawning away, his thing crashed. He had no no other resort but to ask for IT help. And then it was found out by his wife, found out by his children, found out by his relatives. Very embarrassing, but rather be embarrassed than to face God's judgment forever and ever. Never consider and think of God as the party pooper. And last but not least, as we listen to this and see how God intervened firstly, with Nathan in the Old Testament, that God's word will have the last word, not sin. And finally, when Jesus comes as the true king, he will have the last word. Sure, sin will have its repercussions. It will. And so sometimes when we are ministering and counselling and talking about the wreckage of sin when there's adultery in a relationship, and I do say to couples, can you show me the photos of, photo of your children, your young children? And when I look at them and I sh- remind them, these are the children that God gave you, how, how could you do this? How could you scar these children? How could you betray this spouse? But in the end, even the horrors there, they are all cancelled by the beauty and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can show you again and again in our lives and in, in our life and our ministry here of how God has spoken and given us a new ch- A new, a second chance, a new season of life, if only we would believe in the complete forgiveness and new life that Jesus gives us. Let's turn to God in prayer. Let's stand for a quiet moment in hearing His Word and praying to Him. We want to ask for your forgiveness, Heavenly Father whenever we trifle with sin and we make two very huge mistakes before you, some of us are on that atheistic denial that there is no such thing as sin and if there is, it's not too bad. We always have religion and good works to overcome it. But you now show us, firstly in the life of David, recorded here in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then in Psalm 51, what it means for us to acknowledge the gravity, the depth, the darkness, the destructiveness of our sin, especially of sexual sin, and to say, with all honesty before you, stripped bare of any excuse or rationalisation, against you and you alone have I sinned. And yet, We know that You are a God of steadfast love, a God who offers us Your mercy and Your grace, a God who offers us Your Son. And in and through You, Lord Jesus Christ, the true King who was master of self to be servant of all, we look to You and Your perfect work and we lean and trust in Your Holy Spirit to give us a clean break from sin, its guilt, its power, its guilt, its punishment, and to know that all who come in simple faith to Jesus have a new beginning. We pray for this new beginning in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our nation, and in our world. We ask this through the only person possible, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.